gang, good morning. So we're continuing our series, right? Summer Psalms. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 15 this morning. Uh, so if you want, open up right to the middle of your Bible so it'll get you the Psalms usually. And uh, you can find 15 because you know numbers no matter what. Um, so this is a short psalm. It's a wisdom psalm written by King David. Uh, it's also, structurally speaking, not real straightforward when we first look at it. And the reason that is, is, is that the verse breaks lead our eyes to kind of break it down and, and, and outline it in our head in a little different than the way we really ought to be doing that. Um, you see, the verse breaks here aren't helpful, and I'm okay saying that because they're not part of the original writing, uh, you know, the divine word in that sense. Um, and, and, and so I'm not worried about that. These were added in the 1400s uh, to make it easier to, to speak about a section of Scripture, to find a section of Scripture, uh, to be able to engage with the Word that way. And, and honestly, I am grateful for the chapters and the verses because uh, I, I read a Kindle reader a lot, and every once in a while I will sit down with someone, and I have my Kindle version, and they have their paper version of it, and they'll say something like, uh, you know, let's, uh, let, let's talk about the paragraph at the bottom of page 36, and there's no, and I'll look, and for whatever reason, there won't be page numbers in my Kindle. Uh, I don't know, any of you read Kindles, right? They have that location number, it's this huge number, and it's completely worthless, I don't know what it's for. Uh, and we're both just like, I don't know where you are, and you don't know where I am, and it makes things very difficult. Uh, and, and it's kind of when that happens, I think, oh, this must have been what it was like before they added the chapters and they added the verses to, to Scripture. Because I can kind of picture someone back in the day saying, hey, could you explain to me in, in the first scroll of Isaiah, like roughly, I don't know, a third-ish way through that, you know, that line where he's saying someone's crying out in the streets because there's no wine. What, what does that mean? And, and I just think the next 30 minutes, these their guys are trying to figure out where this spot is. And, and you and I, we, we can easily just say, you know, in Isaiah 24, 11, Let's talk about that. And, and so very grateful for it. Uh, but anyway, the downside is that places like this, in, in Psalm 15, the verses are divided in this weird way. And, and I want to get us to the right division, the right outline. And, and so you kind of need to know this too. I know this is kind of a long introduction, but uh, a little bit about, about this. Uh, the Psalms are poetry. And, and the most common style that we see here is this, this Hebrew style of poetry called Hebrew parallelism. And, and, and you see in English, most of our, when, when we talk about poetry, there's a lot of exceptions to this, but we usually mean that there is rhyme and, and there is meter, something like, like Dr. Seuss, right? Uh, I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. And, and when I first began reading the Psalms, I, I just kind of assumed, you know what, in the Hebrew, I bet this all rhymes and it's beautiful and that must be what it is. And that's just not reality because that's not the way Hebrew poetry works. Um, in Hebrew parallelism, there is some meter, but there is no rhyming. Instead, it consists of parallel lines that relate to each other in a different way. And, and you kind of have to get your head around, that's, that's what this Hebrew poetry, how it works. And, and the lines can relate to each other as just pure repetition of each other, or maybe there can be uh, repetition except for it adds a, a nuance or, or makes an emphasis of some sort, or it might be that they absolutely contrast each other. In, in some way, they are, they're related to each other. And, and the reason I want you to know all this is, is so that you can see it for yourself. Hopefully you've got the outline before you, right? Um, it's been added to your bulletin. It's just a piece of paper. looks like this. And, and I kind of broke it down so you could visually see it because in my head when I tried to do it audibly, it was really hard to get there. Uh, at the most basic level then, what you begin to see is, is it begins with this question. And the question is followed by these six couplets, these six pairs of lines that, that answer the question in six specific 
areas, and, and then there's just this one line concluding statement at the very end. Uh, so then, having said all that, let's, let's read this non-rhyming poetry, uh, Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come to your word and we want to learn. We, we want to be changed. We want to be more like you. Please enlighten our minds this morning. Please soften our hearts for that purpose. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so this theme-setting question that it all begins with, that David is writing here, that's directed at Yahweh, at God, is this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now the tent in question here is a, is a reference to the tabernacle. At the, at the time of David, who's writing this, uh, the place where God was most present was the tabernacle. Where, where God's people were invited to, to gather together, to, to meet with the Lord, to, to worship God most full, fully. Now, the holy hill here is a reference to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. We talked about that uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but at this time, the temple hasn't been built there yet. This is, though, where, where God instructs the temple to be built later. But, but at this time, it is the location of the Ark of the Covenant, which is also in a tent, uh, right, where the Ten Commandments are contained. And, and it's this, uh, this object that was this tangible sign of, of God's physical presence among his people. Now, the question itself re reflects man's desire to be welcomed into the presence of God, right? Just that almost universal sense. But, but what do we make of this question as we approach this as, as Christians, right, as God's people? Is this a question about justification, about salvation? Is this how someone can, can do so? Now, are the answers then, you know, how we can be made right with God? A, a similar question actually came up at the men's study this last Wednesday, and the, the question was posed, uh, what's the most basic explanation of the gospel? In other words, how can a sinful man, a sinful woman, be accepted by God. And put simply, right, it's, it's placing their faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's making Him their Lord and their Savior, something along those lines. But let's be clear right here from the start that Psalm 15 is not asking a question of justification. When, when it asks this question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tents? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? It's a question that's directed to God's people to begin with. And so understand, this is a question that is about sanctification. It's about godly living. It's about how we as God's people live in a way that pleases God, that is God, that is acceptable to God. And 
It's a very important question. I, I think too often as, as moderns, we, we think, okay, well, I only care about justification. I only want to know if I have salvation. I don't care about the rest of it, and that's not a way to live. This is an important question for us as God's people because God's goal in redemption was never merely that you and I would simply escape the punishment of hell after we die, but that you and I would live godly lives to his glory today and tomorrow and every day until he calls us home. That's the Lord's intention. We, we see it everywhere. Let me give you a few of them. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? Many of us know this passage well, and we know it well because it beautifully speaks of the sovereign grace of God in salvation when it says this, when it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But do you know what the next verse says? The very next verse, verse uh, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. You can think of 1 Peter 1.15. As, as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. That's a call to us as God's people. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, as, as believers, we are to keep the moral law of God. It's good. The, the law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments and uh, interpreted throughout the Scriptures, you know, further summarized by our Lord in, in Matthew 22, as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. As Christians reading Psalm 15 through the lens of the New Testament, this should draw our eyes to Jesus. Because Jesus kept the law perfectly for us. Jesus is righteousness for us. But it should also remind us that we want to be like Jesus. Right? We, we desire to be more like our Savior. We, we want lie, to live lives that are pleasing to our Lord, okay? Now, be, because we do have fellowship with God, we're going to walk in holiness. And two more quick things, and then we'll get into those, those six couplets. The, the, the first is this. Um, this is not an exhaustive list of, of what holiness and godliness looks like. Right? It's, it's representative in a way, but it is not exhaustive. Uh, we know it for a lot of reasons. We know because we see all over Scripture other ways that, uh, of living that is pleasing to the Lord. We also know it because the same question is asked in Psalm 24, nearly the same question, and, and a different answer is given. Uh, there it reads, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, which is absolutely compatible with what we read here, but not the same answer. And I also want you to, to know this, that you and I cannot passively sit back and wait for godliness to just occur in our life, right? It's good to pray for it. We're asking God to do something. We cannot just, just do it, but, but it is something that we need to be actively involved with, right? We are, we are called to actively pursue holiness. Jerry Bridges, in his fantastic book that I think it was last summer we read out at Bill Boyce's house, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, says it this way, through Christ, he has delivered us from sin's reign so that we can now resist sin. But the responsibility for resisting is ours. God does not do that for us. To confuse the potential for resisting, which God provides, with the responsibility for resisting, which is ours, is to court disaster in our pursuit of holiness. So we must actively seek the Lord in that way. 
And so then, let's look at these six couplets and, and God willing, learn them well and, and seek to apply our lives to this, to, to shape our lives around these. The, the first couplet deals with our lifestyle and our, our conduct from a wider angle when it says this, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Now, if you're like me, I, I, I see the word blameless and, and there's a part of me that, that finds that a little scary because what, in my head, for some reason, I translate that immediately to, oh, that means sinless, that means perfect, and, and, and that's not right. I, I've been reading Job lately because considering it may be preaching it after Luke this fall, uh, so anyway, I've been, been reading that, and, and right at the beginning of that, God himself refers to Job as a blameless and upright man who, who fears God. And, and yet, by chapter 42 of the book of Job, Job is convicted of his sin, and he says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He acknowledges himself to be a sinner. God does the same with him. God's the one who brings that um, for him to see, right? But, but a, a sinless man has nothing to repent of, nothing. Hopefully, you, you already know this, right, by, by virtue of the fact that Job is a man, you know, but, but Job, who, called God, who God called blameless, he was a sinner, and so are all of us. And, and so the first word that we see translated here, blameless, don't think sinless, uh, you know, blameless in, in Psalm 15, it, it's a Hebrew word, tamim, T-A-M-I-M, I don't know if you'd care about that at all, uh, but it literally just means whole, right, like the whole pie or the whole enchilada, uh, the whole something, right? Uh, it does not in any way imply sinless perfection. Now, in our passage, blameless describes a person, uh, a person's walk, their, their journey of life, their, their way of life. This, this man or woman's character in, in all areas of life is, is biblically moral. There is a, a wholeness as opposed to just being moral in one area but not other areas of his life uh, or just a few areas. We tend to put a, a higher area or a higher value on areas of godliness that come naturally to us. I don't know if you've realized that in your own life, but it's, it's what I've observed over and over again, right? It's, it's a lot easier to dismiss, dismiss sins that we struggle with and, and really think these are the important ones that, are, that come to us fairly easy. But, but there must be a, a wholeness, wholeness to our holiness um, that we pursue in the Lord. In every area of life must be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ, even areas that might seem insignificant to us. So then the second line of the couplet adds to the first with, the, with that one word really uh, does. Does is the significant part here. Now, not only is the woman who pleases the Lord walking blamelessly, that is not doing wrong, but she also actively does what is right. And then in the second couplet, right, look at verses uh, 2b and 3a. Uh, it says, the, the one who may dwell on God's holy hill speaks truth in his heart, and he does not slander with his tongue. This is about the words that come out of our mouths. The first part tells us what he does do, and the second part tells us what he does not do. And so what's the man who pleases the Lord do? He speaks truth in his heart. The words that come out of his mouth act accurately represents what he truly thinks. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that comes into your mind must now come out your mouth uh, to, to obey this, right? There is wisdom and, and tact and silence in moments. Uh, in, in my family, there's this, this legendary story um, that happened before I was born as the youngest. I've only heard the legend, didn't get to experience in real life. But my, my 
oldest brother, Brad, uh, very young, in a department store, goes up to a, uh, a woman who is incredibly obese and, and tugs on the skirt of the, her skirt she's wearing. And when she looks down, all sweet to this boy, he, he, he says something along the lines of, uh, Lady, you sure are fat. And as you can imagine, my mom was absolutely mortified that those words had just come out of his mouth to someone like that, uh, right? And if you were to judge just observationally, yeah, what he said was true, but it doesn't make it the right thing to say. There is tact to not use our, open our mouths at time. Everything you say does not have to come out your mouth. And some of us probably need to know that lesson better than others, but, but keep that in mind. You, you can't appeal to this of like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Psalm 15, I'm just going to rip it into you, uh, right? So, so here's the point. Whatever you do say must be accurate to what you really believe, right? Not, not just flattering words to get what you want, not, not just saying what you think somebody wants to hear, that, that kind of thing. And at times, this means you might hurt somebody's feelings. And that's okay, so long as, as you can honestly say that you've done so in, in obedience to four, uh, Ephesians 4.14, which calls us to not just speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love, right? Not just the truth in anger, I can say whatever I want. Not just the truth in, in rage, I'm just crazy mad, right? Not just the truth in this, this self-righteous pride that we might want to do, but the truth in love towards the one that we speak to and, and to the honor of our, our God's name. Now, the second line is, is that we should not slander, which means that we don't use our words to, to falsely damage uh, someone's reputation, right? Another person's reputation. Our, our tongues must be kept in check uh, even as we go to speak the truth. And in chapter 3 of the book of James, we are warned that our tongue is like a small fire that can set the entire forest ablaze. And we live in an era where we see that all the time, right? It seems like California is on, on fire all the time. Uh, and, you, and you trace these back, and they are, to these tiny little things. And our tongue is being compared to one of those tiny little things that can just set it all on fire. Now, with our, our mouths, let us not slander or lie or tear down our brothers and our sisters in Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, writing on this psalm, said this. He said, I, I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip criticism and slander than by any other single sin. So let us, let us make it our godly ambition to, to be the man, to be the woman that David describes here in the way that we, we use our mouth, our, our lips, our words. The, the third couplet is, is there in the last two lines of verse 3, and it, and it says this, uh, this person does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up reproach against his friend. Uh, when, when Google began as a company in 1998, it, it included in its code of conduct this really unusual phrase that caught everyone's attention. Anyone know what it is? Travis, not even you? Don't be evil. That was in their code of contact for their employees, for, for anyone who used their stuff. Don't be evil. And, and, and a few years ago, they actually removed that from the code of conduct, and it created a bit of a stir when they did so. Uh, you, you might say that God has included in our code of contact uh, this similar phrase, don't be evil, but specifically here to our, our neighbor. And, and we are never to remove that phrase from our code of conduct, right? It's a, a way of life for us as God's people. And, and, and so to understand this, it's, it's pretty simple, right? If it would be evil to your neighbor, don't do it. Pretty simple, right? Or, or better yet, the, the way our Lord stated it in Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
The second line adds that we are not to reproach a friend. Uh, reproach in this sense means to shame them, to scorn them, uh, to treat them with, with disgust for whatever reason, right? Maybe it's something they did, something they said, uh, something they're going through in life, right? And you, you know that facial expression, uh, you've seen it on someone's face, right? When, when they have reproach for another person, it's just that like something stinky and nasty sitting there and just that nasty face. Uh, that's the idea there. Everything that's going on in the heart in that moment, the, the, the sort of ungodly response to a friend or that sort of ungodly response to a friend does not put us in a place to correct and encourage that friend, right? If, if they're going the wrong, wrong direction, if they're, if they're sinning in certain ways. There is no love for neighbor in reproach. And so let us be obedient to the Lord and put ourselves in a relational position to lovingly point our friends back to, to God in His ways, not to say that we don't correct, but we correct in a way that does not bear reproach. The, the fourth couplet in, in the first two lines of verse 4 says this, in, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Uh, this is about having discernment to rightly value and esteem others. You know, every, everyone you interact with, the people you meet, celebrities you see on television or whatever, the people's books you read, all these things, you, you kind of put a value system on, on what you think of these people. And, um, and, and this is calling us to this, that when we observe a vile person, that we rightly consider them vile. That didn't mean you hate them or have to go after them, but that you rightly uh, esteem them in the sense of that is, that is vile. We, we, we do not esteem them or seek to mimic people that are vile in that sense. The, the second half of the couplet is, is the inverse, right? That we honor those whose life displays godly fear of the Lord. That, that's a characteristic, a, a quality that we are to esteem and value. And so let me ask you, you this, to get applicable real quick. Who, who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? I was actually reading a, a study not long ago, and I don't remember all the details. I'm going to go off, off notes here. Um, but, but the idea was that, that young people, basically they were calling young people my age and younger, so now it's old people, but uh, that young people don't have heroes anymore. That the generation before us could point to, you know, people on their street and people in their church and you know, people they've served along in the army or, or other places and say, these are people that I, I want to emulate, that I want to be like, that I look up to, that I respect and, and honor. And our, our generations just don't anymore. But, but let me ask you this, because, because we do have heroes, we just not usually the right ones. I mean, wh whose life do you wish you could mimic? Who do you look up to? Right? Not sure? Ask your, ask your spouse, your, your children, your, your parents, your friends. Ask them, right? They probably know. Who, who's the hero? Your hero, who do you look up to? When I was a, uh, early in high school, a young, unbelieving teenager, sadly my heroes were, were these people. A guy named Jose Canseco, anyone ever heard of him? Uh, baseball player, steroid user, cheater. I know, starting to run in the Astros, not giving a good track record here. Uh, anyway, he's a man arrested for domestic abuse. Um, a vile person. That was one of my heroes as a teenager. Two more is a guy named Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain, singers in rock bands. Um, one of them ended his life tragically in suicide. A gifted musically, but vile individuals. And these were people that I thought were, were worthy of, of imitation, worthy of desiring to be like. I had this Christian friend later in college, freshman year of college, who, who spoke earnestly of his father as his hero. His, his dad was a, a godly man who loved the Lord and loved his wife and loved his, his children and loved his church and, 
And it was interesting to, for me to see this guy look up, like talk about his dad, like he's here all the time. And it just seemed weird to me at first, weird to me. Only later in life did I think, that's beautiful. That's what every father should esteem to see. When, when I came to faith, my, my heroes, uh, you know, later when I was coming to faith, my, my heroes began to be different people. I, I wanted to model my life after, the, you know, usually it began actually with some, some dead Christians, right? Augustine, uh, Basil the Great, some of these guys have been dead a long time. Uh, and, and godly people that were in my life, a youth pastor that would always, you know, pull me into the scriptures and let's read it and let's learn from God's word was a, a hero to me. The author, John Piper, uh, you know, my daughter's named Sadie Piper after him. Um, there's God-fearing musician named Ross King. These were people that started to become my, my heroes. But also in that list was, uh, for a time, was a guy named Mark Driscoll. Maybe you've heard that name. He was famous for a while, a, a Christian pastor who had a huge platform. Uh, and, I, and I looked up to him, but even as a, a professing Christian, his, his walk of life proved to be vile. His, his treatment of, of others was ungodly, and he was full of pride and all these things. And, and so it was right for me to despise him. That sounds weird, doesn't it? That's a value statement. It is not right to hate him. It's not right to go after him in that way, but it is right to judge his character as vile because it was vile. Now, these last few names I, I named, right, you probably know some of them, but I bet you don't know those people, just their names, um, right? Just like they're not people that I know. Many of these early heroes of mine in the, in the Christian faith were more like Christian celebrities, and I, and I want to say this, you are better off having hero, heroes of, of people you know, people in your life, people who know your name, who will, who will pray for you, who, who are involved in your life, to, to have heroes that way. And so you've got to begin asking these questions, right? Who are the God-fearing women in your life that you should rightly esteem, who are working hard to care for their family, to follow the Lord, to prove their community, or, or both as they're working outside the home? Who are, who are the women whose life you, you can mimic, that you can look up to, that you can learn from? Who are those? Who, who are the godly, God-fearing men in your life who are faithful husbands, and faithful employees, faithful loving fathers who are kind and generous with their money and offer to pray for you? Who are the men in your life like that? Who are the people? And I, I'll say this as an aside, seek those people. Most of us don't even think about that. Like, like think about the people that God has placed in your life. Are there people that you can seek out wisdom when it comes to what does it mean to follow the Lord? How do I handle this, you know, being in academic life and home life? How do I, uh, you know, parent well at this stage and that stage and, and seek this sort of wisdom? Do not esteem or value those who worship money and fame and self instead of the Lord. Do not esteem those who are cruel and prideful and unnecessarily harsh. Instead, honor those ordinary men and, and women who with humility are, are following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they follow after Christ, so we can follow them and learn from them. Now, th this fifth couplet is, is about integrity. As it states, the one who pleases the Lord swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is simple. Uh, we must be people, people who keep our promises, even if it's no longer beneficial to you, right? Even at that point. 
We want to be people who keep wedding vows and membership vows and, and, you know, keep your word. If you say you're going to do something that you follow through and you actually do it, God is, is pleased by that and, and approves of those who, who keep their word. Let's be those people. Uh, the last couplet, <clears throat> the person who can dwell in the presence of the Lord in his tent does not put out his money at interest and he does not take a bribe against the innocent, right? That first line is... Uh, is, uh, explains the right way to help others with your money, and the second line forbids you from gaining money in, in this evil manner. Th- this, is, this is not a knock against banks, right? I can remember reading this years and years ago, new in the faith, and, and my wife's dad, uh, CFO of a bank, and I just thought, huh, so he must be violating that because he works for a bank and interest is evil, and that's how they make all their money. That's not the picture here. It's not that interest is wrong, right? You look to Deuteronomy 23, right? God forbid God's people uh, from charging a brother or any fellow Israelite interest when they lend out money. Uh, you, you picture it like this. It, it wasn't I'm borrowing money to build a building or something like that or to buy a house. Uh, say a neighbor's crops failed, something went miserably wrong. Uh, our, our pumpkin has failed, by the way. Anyway, um, their, their crops fail and they're, and they're desperate to buy seed for the next season so that they can plant something. And, and the idea is this, don't, don't take advantage of their desperate need to make money for yourself, but be generous with them. Treat them right. These are, these are your, your, your brothers in the faith uh, and to do so that way. Now, the, the second line forbids making money by accepting someone's bribe. And, and that's because this is absolutely evil. It would prevent proper justice. As Deuteronomy 16, 19 clearly states, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. You see, in both instances, the individual, you know, the, the, the concern here is do not value money more than you value God and the, and the value neighbor. Do not do that. And so this brings us all to this final line, he who does these things shall never be moved. Some translations say shaken, which brings us around, right? So, so how about you? You think of your own life, do, do you do these things? Is there a wholeness to your godliness? Is perfect honesty in your words? Is, is your treatment of your, your neighbor, all your neighbors, void of evil? Do you rightly discern those who are vile and those who fear God and, and do you esteem them and despise them properly? Do you keep your word always and do you love justice and, and people more than money? As we're confronted with these high expectations, it, it draws us back to David's initial question in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And as our minds drawn back to this question, we quickly we realize, right, that you and I, we can't keep such high standards perfectly. And this inevitably drives us to look for someone who's not like us, someone who is truly blameless, someone who is perfectly righteous in all these ways and all the other ways of the law. It drives us to, to look to the only one who is absolutely holy. You know the answer, most of you do, to Jesus. And, and this side of the cross, we, we know that we who have placed our faith in Jesus will not be moved, we will not be shaken because of our union with Christ. 
And so in Christ, we are unshakable. We are unmovable. As, as Romans, right, that beautiful passage in Romans 8, 38 and 39 teaches us, he says, for, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are unmovable. And, and yet these six couplets here these are good they're good to be sought after let all who are in christ yearn to be more in line with what we have read here what the lord is teaching us here so i want to end with just a a quote from trimper longman and he says this once christ had come there was no longer any need for a holy place where god made his special presence known Jesus is the very presence of God. Every place is holy. The Christian is a temple and dwelt by the Holy Spirit as the sanctuary was filled with the presence of God. Nonetheless, we are called to the same character and lifestyle described by the psalmist. Like the Old Testament people of God, Christians sin, but when we do, we we turn in repentance to Jesus, the only one who is truly righteous. So we find our salvation there. We find our security there. We find our rest in all that Christ has done for us. And yet we also take our direction, our way of life that we are to seek after from his word and and where we see it like we do here in Psalm 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be men and women who can sojourn in your tent, who can dwell on your holy hill, who are pleasing to you. We, We want to be everything described in this psalm, and yet we know that we are not the Christ. And so the only way to live with with that sort of godly character is to confess our weakness and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, for imputed righteousness, and and to be ourselves indwelled by the Holy Spirit who can make us more like Jesus, our Lord. As we daily remember, I am not the Christ, may we also daily remember that Jesus is. And so look to him. So, Spirit, we ask you to Teach us to walk in the ways of the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.